Great example of a psalm put right to music, modern day music. Appreciate that, Eileen. And how appropriate it is that this psalmist was asking God to consider his words and to consider the meditations of his heart, because really, that's exactly what Jesus does in our passage this morning, is he considers the words of the two potential disciples that have come to him. We're in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. We'll begin in verse 16. And we've noticed a pattern in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, and that is Matthew um, reports three miracles and then a teaching on discipleship. Three miracles and then a teaching on discipleship and so forth in these chapters. That's how he arranges the material. And this morning we are going to look at a teaching on Discipleship, and I've called it down-to-earth discipleship because Jesus, of course, is taking the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's living it out as he takes it down the mountain. But I call it down-to-earth discipleship because Jesus, with the preceding miracles, he has just done something absolutely incredible with his, the use of his divine powers. He has overcome earthly obstacles that aren't supposed to be overcome. And then we find that in this text, all of that power, he doesn't even have a place to lay his head at night. And so we learn in this text that his divine powers from heaven that can overcome earthly challenges, he does not use them to make his life easy. He doesn't use them to escape the hardships of life. He uses them to bless others and to bless God. And we learn that his willingness to suffer, his willingness to bless others, even at his own expense, is also, it's a part of his character. And because it's a part of his character and who he is, If we want to be like that, if we want to be his disciple or his follower, it needs to be a part of our character as well. And we'll learn this by looking at Matthew's account. And Matthew reports or records kind of a spontaneous natural event that happened. So after Jesus performed these miracles, two potential disciples come up to him and they They have words with him. They say something to him. And we learn from Jesus' response. Now, Jesus is put on the spot here. We learn from his response about discipleship. Because what we learn is Jesus, in essence, communicates to them that they don't really understand what they're asking. They want to follow him, but they don't really understand what it means to follow him. They don't really understand what they're getting themselves into. Do we understand what we have gotten ourselves into or what we may want to get ourselves into if we have not yet confessed Christ as Lord in our life? Do we really understand what true discipleship is? Or is perhaps our understanding of discipleship, has it been watered down to some extent? It reminds me of a commercial, it's kind of a catchy commercial, uh, I've watched it on TV. It's two moms, and uh, one of the mothers boasts, I give my kids fruit juice 
or juice made with real fruit. And the other mother says, I give my kids 100% fruit juice. And the other mother says, what's the difference? And she says, if you were a fish, would you rather swim in water that was made with real water? Or would you rather swim in 100% water? Well, you know how commercials are. They manipulate and they market and everything. But it sounds really convincing. I think it bears here too because when it comes to discipleship, you know, does our disciple, is our discipleship or our understanding of it taken from something made with Christianity? Taken from a Christian cliche that was really, really catchy or taken from a best-selling book? This is what discipleship means. This is what discipleship is. Or is our understanding of discipleship really true, 100% taking from God's Revelation. Just for fun, another question as we go through these passages to be thinking about as you consider it is, do followers of Christ or say potential followers of Christ, do they refuse him or does Christ refuse them? Let's read our text in 16 through 22. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our disease. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So in verses 16 and 17, Jesus is casting out demons and manifesting his powers as we have already looked at. And of course, that draws a crowd. He has quite a crowd in front of him. But apparently it was too much. And in the divine providence of God, it was not his will that Jesus remain in that one spot and continue to do miracles and healings and exorcisms. It's time for him to move on. And so Jesus begins to make arrangements with those that are closest to him. Let's get some boats together. We're going to get in them. We're going across the lake. It's time to move. And so in this crowd were two disciples. By the way, disciples in the Bible, just because it calls them a disciple, doesn't mean that they are a true follower of Christ. The word is used uh, generically. It's used basically to describe a follower. It means learner, follower. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are a true disciple. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But there are two people in this crowd, their hearts are burning. They are loving what Jesus is saying to them. They they are witnessing something that you shouldn't be even witnessing on earth, miracles. And then he speaks with such authority. And not only that, but the words he says just kind of get all up in here and melt your heart like wax. You, You are witnessing power 
and, and goodness and hope all in this packed into this one ordinary looking guy, Jesus. And their hearts are telling them, I got to get in on this. I've got to be that man's disciple. And, but Jesus is arranging to go across the lake, so time is of the essence. And I think rather than procrastinating, this first guy at least, this guy does the right thing. And he wants to make his, his will or his wishes known to the rabbi, to the teacher. He wants them to know that I like what you have to offer. I like this plan. I like your method. I like everything about you. I like what you say. It really resonates with my heart and my soul. I want in. So let's look at potential disciple number one. The scribe in verse 19. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Scribes are all in the Gospels for good and bad. Most of the time they are hostile to Jesus. They're causing problems. They're asking him questions. They're trying to trap him. They're using their knowledge to get him. But in this case, there's also some good ones. But it, in this case, it looks like this guy, he's a scribe, but he's zealous. The... the Words of Christ are having a positive impact on him. His eyes are being opened. Now, scribes were authorities of the law, teachers of the law. They knew their Bibles. They knew it well. They knew it better than I know mine. And they were also sanctioned by the Pharisees to be the teachers of the law for Israel. They have clout. They're smart. They're talented. Not only that, but they also, as teachers of the law, they often had followers of their own. You know, if they were good enough, they had disciples following them. So it was um, pretty humble, I think, of this scribe to say, hey, I want to be your disciple to Jesus. I want to follow you. I like your, your teaching method and your content better than I like my own, so to speak. And then he gives Jesus what I guess any of us in our lot of life, would consider the offer of a lifetime. I will follow you wherever you go. That's how deep my feelings are for you. And all the things that I've processed and considered. That's my conclusion. I will follow you wherever you go. What, what pastor wouldn't want to hear those words, right? As far as ministry, somebody who comes into a church and says, look, God has stirred my heart and I just want you to know that this is where he's called me. I'm going to stay in here and I don't care what people come and go, but I am a keeper. I'm going to stay. I'm going to minister as, as according to the power that God has given me. I'm, I'm with you in this ministry here. What parent wouldn't want to hear their child say, look, mom and dad, as they're growing up, I just don't I just want you to know you don't have to worry about me. I know other what other kids sometimes do, but I'm not leaving. I'm not going to rebel. I'm with your program. I'm staying under your authority. It's going to be, you know, for the most part, pretty smooth sailing and until it's time for me to get out from under your authority. I mean, what parent wouldn't want to hear that kind of offer? What spouse wouldn't want to hear the words that we are supposed to hear when we come up to the altar? And that is, look, I'm in this for life. I'm where wherever you go, I go. We are in this together forever, wherever you go. I mean, these are choice words. Who wouldn't want, you know, according to our lot or our place in life, anybody under us or whatever we're in charge of, whatever. Who doesn't like this kind of impressive loyalty, dedication and commitment? You don't see that very often. It's very rare. Jesus gets it. He gets the offer. 
you know, if I hadn't read this passage before, this is a, this is what I would expect having read what we have previously. I expect this real life event to turn out like this. He hears these words and Jesus goes. Just like he did with the faith of the centurion when he says, nowhere in Israel have I heard such faith. And he makes him an object lesson of what it looks like to have faith in God. Jesus, you don't even have to go. Just say the word. I know authority. And with this kind of offer, you would expect Jesus to do that, but he doesn't. He does turn it into an object lesson, though. He uses it as a perfect teaching opportunity. If this guy showed up at our church, I think we would want to take him in with open arms, wouldn't we? Then Jesus' response is, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What has that got to do with discipleship? It's not the response. It's not the response I would want to hear if I just made this really big life decision, maybe even the biggest decision in my whole life. Man, I don't know where he's going, but I like it. I'm headed that way. What we know about Jesus is that in reading the Gospels and reading God's Word, we learn it. He teaches us is that Jesus knows people. He knows hearts, he knows minds, and we can say, well, he's God, and he uses his divine powers, he looks right through us, dividing even bone and marrow. He divides even the intentions. I mean, he slices and dices our motives to what's true and what's false. He's that good, and sometimes, or maybe he's using his divine power, but even without that, he's just so incredibly smart. He knows human nature from the outside as well, and and he just knows personalities, he knows tendencies. He can read us even without divine knowledge. He just knows us. And I think a lot of times and he, he, he gives answers to questions to people based on what's in their hearts. Based on what he knows they're thinking. He does it all the time, actually. Based, and he'll say, based on what they were thinking or hearing their thoughts, Jesus responded like this. And so, out of this statement, we learn something that we wouldn't otherwise know about this scribe. And that is, he likes comfort. He likes, he treasures ease. He treasures comforts of life. And Jesus sees that as a weakness. And so, he uses this metaphor or simile um, he often uses animals and he uses the idea that his response is, you know, out there in nature, even the wild animals, foxes, they have burrows that they nestle in, place of safety, place of quiet and peace. And the birds of the air, well, eventually they find their rest and they have a place that they can go when they need to rest and sleep. I have no such place. I have so no such comforts. And it's true, of course, Jesus stayed in people's houses. He, he traveled. He did not travel with a custom-painted tour bus with all the luxuries and the soft seats and the air conditioning and the heat 
in the sound system. He, he hoofed it. And when he did it from town to town, that was his ministry. That's how he pleased his father. He would rely, as culture um, has it, would rely on the hospitality of others. It wasn't common. I mean, it was common. It doesn't mean he was homeless, but that's just what you did. But there were times where he slept outside. There were times he slept in the wilderness. He slept in the garden. The idea is that when it gets right down to it, there was absolutely nothing fancy about his lifestyle. He guaranteed no comforts to anybody that would come after him. And he knows the shallowness of man. He knows our tendency to say one thing but really mean another. Or to say something and not really know what we mean. Or to to just say something for the sake of saying something. Reminds me of Peter's denial we looked at in the Easter season. Now, Peter made this assertion, and and I believe Peter at that time. His emotions, his mind, his will, his intellect, everything was lined up to say to Jesus, I don't know about the other guys in this room, but I will not betray you. I know myself. I don't can't I can't speak for them. I'll never go there. And Jesus says, you know, day's not even going to pass, Peter. Circumstances change. You're not. You will deny me. As a matter of fact, not even just one time, three times. Jesus knows all this about us. So the assumption with all of that is this disciple he really is taken up with Jesus, but he's taken up primarily with the glamour. He's taken up with the glory. Man, if every day following you look like this, where you're spitting out miracles to the left and healings to the right, and you're profoundly teaching, if every day look like this, I want that. Yeah, I am going to follow you. But he's not considering the whole picture. God's grace. Jesus wants to... Make it right, his, his mind and his thinking. And be truthful with him. You know, following Christ isn't just adding him to your already good life. It's not an ingredient that you add to things that you already have going for you. Following Christ means actually getting rid of things and some of those things that are good in your life. Following Christ often means making a sacrifice of the things that you already have. And we get right back to the, to, to the Sermon on the Mount principles of the pearl of great price. When you look at God and you know God and you follow God, the idea is that you realize, I just found everything I could possibly ever want forever. And so all the other things that I have accumulated in my life that I thought were good, I can get rid of those and sell those so I can have this. That's what discipleship is. I'll give up everything just to have him. I have a rather unique testimony, and I know I've shared it many times, but um, the gospel was shared to me. I was, I can't remember if I was 18 or 19, sorry, but I wasn't really much for records and stuff like that. And I know a lot of you just give a minute by minute account of your salvation experience and everything, but. I was just about to turn 19. It was, I think it was the same. It was in June when my birthday was. So I was 18 or 19. The gospel had been preached to me, uh, 
at least a year previous to that. And that whole time, the conviction of the Holy Spirit was just growing, growing. Conviction. Conviction, it's like trying to do life in wet concrete, you know? It's like it, this burden is on you. Doesn't The things you used to do so freely, the, the, the way you used to sin so freely and light-footed, you can't do it anymore because the Spirit's just bearing down on you. And uh, I was basically taught or told or observed, however, I'm not blaming anybody, but when you get saved, here's what's happened. It's radical. You know in your heart something big just happened and the chains fall off. Now you see light the, and... Um, I don't know what all the hymns sing about it. it. You just know it. Goosebumps, stars, you falls, whatever. And so that's what I'm expecting. And I finally get to the point where I am surrendered. Man, I've got, I got to have Christ. I am so desperate. I am such a filthy sinner. And God just been opened my eyes up to who I really was. And I'm not liking it. So I get to the point one night I come home um, from a party and I'm in bed and I'm and I say, okay, God. And this was my prayer. I know it's um, not very academic, but God, if everything that Bob says about you is true, because he was the one that shared the gospel with me, I need you to come in my heart. Please save me. And I, it's pretty much that. I was waiting for that salvation experience and nothing happened. Hmm, okay. Went to sleep next night. Did the same routine, very similar. Night, late, in the bed, lights are out before I go to bed. God, um, I really do need you to save me. Nothing. And third night, fourth night, fifth night, I don't know how many, I think it was about a week went on. Uh, all this time, what am I supposed to think? Man, well, here's, here was my conclusion. I don't think God wants me. I am pretty sure, unfortunately, that I'm one of those persons that has done so much evil at such a short time in life. There's no way in the world I can do enough good with what's left of it. So God's weighing the scales and he's saying, nah, sorry, but you blew it. You're too far gone. So I'm, I'm thinking God just does not want me. I didn't. Realize that that could be a possibility, but that's what I'm... So every night now, my salvation plea is intensifying immensely. So from night one to night five, in my heart, I'm like, God, please save me. I am fearing the flames of hell now. I'm feeling them. Night one, I didn't feel them. Now I'm feeling them. And about a week later, I don't know, seven, eight nights of this, I pray that do the same routine and, and pray the same prayer, eat the same bed, everything. God, save me. And then, that night, whew, in comes the Holy Spirit. The change did come off. My burden was lifted. I felt like I literally could float out of the bed. My eyes were opened. I never looked at the world again. Never, ever in the way I used to look at it. My, I was made new, a new creation. That night. So, what was with that? God doesn't just answer any plea, any statement, any call. I mean, this is my personal experience, but 
It's true. It's honest to the best of my ability. To, I mean, I knew when I was saved and when I wasn't saved. The only thing I can figure is that God knew something about my heart that I did not know. On night one, I thought I really meant it. But I didn't. It was maybe just a band-aid. I want temporary salvation. I want ease from my pain. Make this conviction thing go away. This sickness, I don't like it. Whatever it takes to get rid of that. I mean, that's, that's my personal conclusion. I think it makes sense. Because a lot of times we think that God is so loving and ushy and so desperate that he'll just take anything we offer him. And that's not... True. God is not that desperate. This teaching is really kind of tricky when you put it up against the slogan that we hear today. God accepts everybody for who they are. Just come as you are. Come as you are without one plea. Just as I am. And that's true, but that needs some explanation, doesn't it? Because if God accepts everybody for who they are, then why are so many people going to hell? Maybe because they don't accept God for who he really is. Would God want to enter into some kind of counterfeit relationship? I mean, if we're going to start new and and base the foundation of our whole life on truth, would, would he want to start something new that's already skewed? And I know that there are teachings that happen that Christ gives us before we ever come into salvation. I think this is one of them. And then after we come into salvation, he still does the same thing. And he's opening our eyes to how we think in the error of our ways. So we're always being taught by the Holy Spirit. But if we don't accept God for who he is, then does he accept us for who we are? He reveals himself in nature and then we have this special revelation. Very carefully, articulately tells us who he is. It's a gift to us. and We can understand it. It's within our grasp. But if we're not willing to Consider what Scripture says about God and the conditions of salvation. What did Peter say after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, there's a revival going on. People are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They want to get saved, so they ask a very profound question to Peter. How do I get saved? I want in. And he says, repent and believe. So there are qualifications. You don't just, you don't just step into the kingdom of God. On your own terms. The king of the kingdom has terms. Repentance and belief. And faith means you're able to see God for who he really is. He, he gives us that as a gift. And he enlightens our minds. He illuminates the darkness. And we can see truth. Not all of it, but we can see enough. And part of what we need to see in this gift of faith is that if we can't get in the way we are. We need to repent of this. Now, it's 100% grace. Jesus does it for us, but there's a condition on our heart. It's conditioned on repentance and true belief, and God knows our hearts. We can say one thing and feel another exactly the opposite, and he knows we're broken. 
This response is, man, it's, this is a self-esteem killer, isn't it? This scribe was really touched. He was really moved. He was ready to sign the dotted line. But those personal comforts. It's not everybody's weaknesses, but apparently that was his weakness. Following Jesus is not all glorious and lavish. It's not all miracles. It's not all mountaintops. It's not all profundities. It's not all teachings that melt your heart. There's a lot of hardness to it. That's the whole picture. There's times where you don't get any comforts. There's times where people don't let you into their houses and offer you their bed or their food. There's times where you do go hungry. There's times where your life will be in danger. There's times where people will absolutely hate your message and not want to follow after you, but throw rocks at you. That's what he needs to know. It's it's not all one flavor all the time. Commentator, um, one of Lenski's commentaries on this passage, he says, speaking of the scribe, he sees the soldiers on parade. He sees the fine uniforms. He sees the glittering arms. And he's eager to join. And he forgets the exhausting marches, the bloody battles, the graves, perhaps unmarked. You see, for Jesus, he's too ready. He's too eager. He's too complete in his offer. He's like a seed on stony ground. It grows quickly. It lacks root and it dies under the blazing sun of the price that has to be paid. You see, this man never understood the basic principle of discipleship and that is self-denial, sacrifice, suffering. So Jesus hit him with it. Just want you to know one thing. You're not going to get any comfort out of this. Pretty humiliating. I think it's humiliating. I thought I, I would probably be a little humiliated at that. And then I think, but look at, talk about humility. Look at the humility of Christ. I mean, he, he lays his comforts and luxuries to the side and willingly, voluntarily follows the ministry, the plan of his heavenly father to bring glory to him. Gives all of that up and comes into this dirt and this brokenness and and this betrayal. Talk about humility. Loyalty becomes a servant and washes feet. And that's the true picture of discipleship. Isn't discipleship about conforming to the image of Christ? And if that's the character of Christ, what does Scripture say about him? He he's tough. And our character needs to be working in that direction. And when he does stuff, it's not to serve himself and to make his life easy. It's always so he can rest up to serve others. And it's always so he can bring the Father glory. Discipleship. There is true discipleship. We have it today. Thank God. Because there are disciples that do make those hard decisions when necessary. There are disciples all over the world. So you read in the the um, open door statistics who measures persecution of Christians in different nations. The top of the list is North Korea at this point. If you're a Christian, you do not want to be found in North Korea. Your life will constantly be in danger. Are there Christians in North Korea? 
Yeah. Are there Christians that try to find their way into the most persecuted country in the nation as far as we know of right now? Yeah. They are. Because they're following the footsteps of Christ. That's where their discipleship takes them. That's where they're ready to go. That's true discipleship. That's the true picture. By the world standards, they're fool, fools. But Hebrews tells us, actually, people like that are heroes that the world isn't even worthy of. John MacArthur says, you know what the next verse says? Doesn't say anything about him. You know why? He isn't around. He left in the white space between verse 20 and 21. The Lord nailed him right where he was. He's gone. Isn't Jesus unlike us? We sugarcoat the message. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds believable. Very well may have been. So there's two things to consider before moving on to potential disciple number two. That is, we have to consider the cost of discipleship. That's the teaching here. Without all the, the, the nitty gritty. What's the cost of discipleship? It, God wants us to know it. Before we get into it and even while we're in it. It's the character of Christ. If we're going to follow his feet, he's going to surely take us sooner or later Places that are not comfortable, they're not luxurious, they're very awkward, they're not friendly, they're hurtful and they're painful. And the other thing is to beware of not misrepresenting Christianity as if God is so lovey-dovey and desperate for anybody he can get in the church these days. And that happens. J.C. Ryle says, nothing in fact has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who's willing to make a little profession. He says this, the saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. I hope you will hear what the Spirit of God is saying. John MacArthur says Jesus drove him away. It's like a young man who comes and expresses a desire for scholarship at his master's seminary. We've got to say to him, good, but are you prepared to scorn the delights of the world and study diligently to attain your goal? Or an explorer who wants to gather a team to explore some uncharted portion of the earth and everybody wants to line up until he gives a little speech about snow and the ice, the searing heat, the swamps, the wild animals, and all of a sudden the troops start disappearing. You see, we do Jesus a grave disservice if we lead people to believe that the Christian way is easy. It's not easy. I agree there's no thrill like the way of Christ. There's no glory like the end of that way. But Jesus never said it would be easy. He always said that you had to take up what? If anyone would come after me, Luke 9, 23, you got to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Potential disciple number two, similar situation, not a scribe, a son. Verses 21 through 22, another other disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So. 
Is that the Jesus we're used to hearing of today? Those kind of responses? Seemingly turning people away, really challenging people that are interested in spiritual things or interested in the kingdom instead of welcoming them with open arms. Leave the dead to fend for themselves, even when it's your parents. That's a good way to get somebody not to come into the kingdom of God. So this guy's not quite as eager as the scribe. The scribe's like, sign me up right now, I'm in. This guy's like, I don't want to miss this opportunity. My heart's burning, my gut's telling me to do this. They're getting ready to go across the lake. I can't do that, but I need to let this guy know what my desire is. And it's basically, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, and I want to follow you, but I have something very important to take care of first, and I'm just assuming that this guy would think Jesus, surely of all people, would understand a teacher of the law, right? I mean, who in their right mind would tell somebody that needs to go back and bury one of their parents, uh, just leave them? It's a culturally understood thing. Of course you don't say things like that. Nobody in their mind would deny somebody like that a a decent burial. And if he really is dead, Jews weren't like the Egyptians that embalmed their dead. You only have amount of time, a certain amount of time to work with. Well, there's two different possibilities in here. Scholars don't agree. Um, One of the possibilities of of this is that... uh, the, the son's father really has died and he really does need to get home and, and carry on with the burial, give him a proper burial. Uh, there's a mourning period there. It, it could take at least three days, but they usually mourn about a month. So possibly he'll be back in a month if, if that's the case. If it's, but there's also the, the, the collo- a Middle Eastern colloquial saying about let me go back and bury my father. And what it could mean also is that I have this responsibility. My father's actually still alive. But in order for me to get my inheritance, I need to be there for him and care for him until he dies. So it could be with the right motive. I really do care about my dad and I'm going to stick with him. Of course, I appreciate the inheritance at the end. Or it could be like, I got to stick with my dad until he dies or I won't get my inheritance. We don't know which one it is, but those are the options And it doesn't really matter as far as or or change what Jesus is getting at, because what Jesus is getting at in that statement is that there is absolutely nothing more important than coming to Christ. There's nothing more important than Christ at any time of the day, at any place of the world. As he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.33, seek first my kingdom or his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you as well, the, the most God-pleasing that you can ever thing that you can ever do at any moment is to put God first in your life. And really, the other things don't even matter because they don't please God unless you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because those deeds, I, Isaiah tells us, are filthy rags. All the good cultural things, moral things that you could do, they don't please God anyway. So it's, it's a teaching on priority. What's your top loyalty? Who is the recipient of your, your dedication and your greatest love? And he also acknowledges in this statement that there is a 
a system of the world. And we know it. We know this. Life goes on, right? I mean, you can have a terrible day. You cannot want to get up or out of bed in the morning, but the rest of the world just goes on with their, with their things, their agenda in the way. Uh, people are getting married. People are dying. People are working. New businesses are coming. People are moving. They're building houses. Life just goes on. It's a system of the world. It's kind of designed that way to keep on going until the return of Christ. So it's going to happen. And by saying, let the dead bury their dead, he's saying the world has its own system. This will be taken care of one way or another. It's not like you're going to stop the, the, the spinning of the earth by not doing this one thing. Now, the dead bury the dead. It could be the spiritually dead. Uh, a lot of scholars think he's talking about let those who who aren't kingdom minded anyway, they're going to take care of that. I mean, there are a lot of people that don't know anything about Christ, have no intention of following him. They do good things in the world. They take care of things. They help people. They heal people. They nurse people. They save people. They rescue people. I mean, that, that's just the way of the world. It's, it's common grace. But there are kingdom priorities. And if you are a disciple of Christ, the things of the kingdom have to be way up here first at 24-7. Now, in a perfect world, they would never conflict. Your earthly responsibilities would never conflict with your heavenly responsibilities. But in this broken world, our earthly responsibilities that we really feel tugged to are going to conflict with our heavenly responsibilities. We're going to have to make decisions Who is our priority, even if it makes us look like a bad son or daughter? Even if it makes us look like a bad Christian to the rest of the world and the culture that we live in. Wouldn't that ruin this guy's witness if he actually followed Christ? What kind of Christian is he? Doesn't even go back and bury his own parents. Or he doesn't sit there and, and, and do the time of taking care of your parents. You know they're going to get older. You know they need you there. There's responsibilities. The Bible even says, honor your mother and father. So there's a tug here. There's a big conflict. But in, but in the big picture, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to the pearl of great price, who has priority? Because when it gets right down to it, you know what? All Everything that we have in this world that we know and that may even be precious to us, It passes away. That's the end. Relationships as we know them, to a large extent, possessions, care, all the important things, they pass away with this world and it's all made new in the world to come. So so talk about getting priorities straight. Jesus certainly honored his parents and he certainly honored his mother, but not to the point where he says at the garden in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me because I still got mom to take care of and it's too early for me to die. Who's going to take care of her? Honor your parents. You said that, God. So he's loyal. He's loyal within the boundaries of the kingdom of God. He's as loyal as, as he possibly can be to the things of this earth and the people of this earth. But his priority is to glorify his Father in heaven. And that is a view from the top down of what discipleship should look like. So what happened to this guy? I don't know. Maybe he disappeared between the verses as well as MacArthur. 
put. I can only assume that. But this is, this is down-to-earth discipleship. The sacrifice is the price, and then not misrepresenting Christianity, fawning over people, begging them to come into the to kingdom. Oh, it's okay about that sin, and you don't have to give this up, and you don't have to give that up. Just come to our church and be a Christian. In order to fully embrace God, this is what he is teaching. And there's times we're going to have to make decisions before we come to Christ. And even while we're in the kingdom, just like the rich, rich young ruler, he did the same thing. He knew the weakness. He knew what was in his heart. And he gave him the option. You can have your money or you can have me. What do you love more? Unfortunately, the ruler loved his money. He walked away. We do know that part. For Christ, I mean for some, Christ is in the way. And for some, Christ is the way. Which are we this morning? Which are you this morning? It's a passage as we wind down in John six thirty-seven, And I thought, as I was studying this, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And you think, well, there's Jesus saying, come on, he's lovey-dovey, come on in. Everybody's welcome. We'll make room for everybody. And then a few verses later, he gives a teaching, and he says that if anybody would follow me, in other words, be a, you're following me now, but if you really want to follow me, then you have to, uh, I didn't write it down, but you have to eat of my flesh and my blood. Now, this I did write down. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There's hard teachings. There's hard kingdom things. There's an old story that goes something like this. A master. He comes to his slave and he says, Servant. I don't know what you have, but I really like it. I really need what you have and what drives you. I wish I had that kind of joy and that happiness. What is it? And the servant said, it's Jesus Christ. And the master says, well, then how do I get it? I want Christ like you have him. And the slave says, go put your best white suit on and then come down here and work with us in the mud and you'll meet him. And the master says, I... I can't do that. It's beneath my dignity. Then a year later, he comes back. He's got even more problems in his life. And he goes to the slave. He says, I don't know. You have so much joy. You have so much happiness. My life is such a mess. I I want what you have. How do I get it? And the slave says, well, go put on your best white suit. and Come on down here and labor and get all in the mud. With us, and you'll find him. And the master says, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. So then in desperation, sometime later, he comes back and he says, I can't take it anymore. I have to have what you have. The slave said, well, you know what you got to do. You got to go to the house. You got to put on your best white suit. 
You've got to come back here. Come back here and work with us in the mud and you'll meet him. And the, ma- and the master said, I'll do it. And the slave says, no, you don't have to. What do you mean I don't have to? You just have to be willing. That's all. MacArthur says, see, the Lord may not want to take away your personal comforts. He may not want to take away your personal possessions. He may not want to take away your relationships. And, but you have to be willing to let him. If that's what it means to follow him. That's the affirmation of his lordship. If you come saying, I'll come, but I'm hanging on to this and I'm hanging on to that. And you give him a half heart, you get nothing. If you offer him everything, he may allow you to keep the portion. He may give you more than you have. It's a willingness that is the issue. So that's how we endeavor to exalt God here at New Covenant Fellowship by by presenting God, by presenting the truth and giving people an opportunity to come to it and embrace Christ and the real God, true God for who He reveals Himself as so that they can embrace Him. And that's how we endeavor to edify the saints by putting God's Word out there in the hope that it will be well received and it will change us and transform us little by little. And that's how we endeavor to evangelize the lost by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does offer that, ex- that invitation that all who are weary, come unto me and I will give you rest. Jesus is the answer. He is the Savior. He is the promised King, and he is willing lost creatures back to their creator. What do we need to do this morning in order to line ourselves up with the truth of God that we have heard today? May God bless the preaching of his word.